You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 206, George Washington in Philadelphia. Last week, I covered the issues facing the Continental Congress over the winter of 1778-79. The government was facing problems and divisions, not only from the Silas Dean investigations, but also chronic shortages for the Army and disputes over new strategies. General Washington traveled to Philadelphia to consult with Congress on some of these matters. This week, I want to focus on Washington's visit to Philadelphia during this important time. On December 21, 1778, General Washington left the Army under the command of Major General William Alexander, also known as Lord Sterling. He noted to Sterling that Congress had requested his attendance and that he would be gone for a few days. After a hard 60-mile ride, Washington arrived in Philadelphia on the evening of December 22nd. A local newspaper noted his arrival. Quote, too great for pomp, and as if fond of the plain and respectable rank of a free and independent citizen, His Excellency came in so late in the day as to prevent the Philadelphia troop of militia light horse, gentlemen, officers of the militia, and others of this city from showing those marks of unfeigned regard for this good and great man, which they fully intended and especially of receiving him at the entrance into the state and escorting him hither. As we've seen up until this time, General Washington rarely left the army for any reason. As a leader, he wanted to be present as often as possible. However, since Congress was trying to develop military strategy for the coming year, he felt that he had to provide some input in person. Some of these confidential discussions could not be relegated to written correspondence. The party that accompanied Washington to Philadelphia included his wife, Martha. Also with him was his secretary, Robert Hanson Harrison, as well as his aides-de-camp, Alexander Hamilton, John Lawrence, Richard Kidder Mead, and Tench Tillman. Philadelphia's biggest political dispute at the time was the open feud between Silas Dean and Congress. There was also a major fight brewing between the new president of Pennsylvania and Washington's former aide, Joseph Reed, and the military governor of Philadelphia, Benedict Arnold. That's something I want to get into in more detail in a future episode. But it was a big source of tension in the city at the time. Congress was also still trying to dispose of the charges against General Thompson, who was allegedly showing disrespect for Congress, something that I talked about in more detail last week. Also, the same day that Washington entered Philadelphia, the Continental Army issued its final orders suspending General Charles Lee from command for one year. This was after Congress had approved the court-martial decision against Lee. Washington's aide, John Lawrence, fought a duel with General Lee the following day. Lee had continued to criticize Washington, and many of Washington's supporters felt the need to fight for their commander's honor. Lawrence's second at the duel, and Washington's other aide, Alexander Hamilton, called for an end to the duel 
after the first shot left General Lee with a minor wound. A year earlier, Washington had been fighting for command of the army as the Conway cabal threatened to remove him from command. By this time, though, pretty much everyone either supported Washington or at least had the political savvy to keep quiet about any reservations that they might have had. General Lee was apparently still oblivious to that and as a result had to fight the duel with John Lawrence. The reality in Philadelphia was that Washington had become universally respected and was seen as a source of stability in an increasingly chaotic world. On December 24th, Congress passed a resolution to invite the commander-in-chief to give testimony. Washington held meetings with a committee. However, the committee discussions were secret and no record of the discussions were made. We do know that one of Washington's primary reasons for his visit was to quash any plans to engage in another invasion of Quebec. France seemed very interested in the idea of invading Quebec. Washington did not want to offend America's only European ally. At the same time, he saw the establishment of a French-controlled Quebec as a long-term problem for the United States. Washington was all too familiar with France's prior efforts to keep the British colonies limited to the coast, while France claimed all of the inland areas west of the Appalachian Mountains for the King of France. On Tuesday, Congress resolved not to plan any invasion of Quebec for the following year. Having resolved that question, and having planned to be in Philadelphia for only a few days, one would expect Washington to have returned to the Army in New Jersey. Instead, Washington remained in Philadelphia, as it turns out, for over a month. During those weeks that he remained, he noted in several letters that he always planned to return to the Army within a few days. But that return just seemed to be getting delayed more and more. It's not entirely clear what caused him to continuously change his mind and remain in the city. Washington did continue to meet with the committee through January. A note written by Washington on January 8th suggests that continued discussion was needed over recruiting, a plan for the next campaign, prospects of further aid from Europe, clothing and supplies, changes in the ordinance, clothing, hospital, and engineering departments, and establishment of an inspectorship, as well as the paper currency crisis. A week later, Washington provided a more detailed report to Congress in Hamilton's handwriting, which outlined various options for offensives in 1779. This report was likely the result of Washington's conversations with the Congressional Committee. In the report, Washington evaluated three options. The first option was an all-out assault on the British garrisons at New York and Newport. To expel the British, which Washington noted was the most desired goal, the army would have to be increased in size to at least 26,000 effectives, which was far larger an army than the Continentals had ever managed to put in the field. Washington observed because there were other economic opportunities in the states and life in the army was so poor that they could not hope to recruit such a large army. And even if they could, Congress was unable to feed and clothe the existing army, let alone one that was two or three times the size of the current one. Given these limitations, Washington concluded that an all-out assault was simply off the table. The second operation under consideration was an assault on Niagara. 
this would serve as a defense against any future raids from Canada. For such an operation, Washington argued that the Army would still need to leave at least 13,000 men near New York to prevent any British actions from its main forces at New York and Newport. The Continentals would need another seven or 8,000 soldiers for the action against Niagara. Again, those numbers were nearly as large as the estimates needed for an all-out assault on British forces, and with not nearly as important a goal. Washington believed that a Niagara offensive would be even more expensive than an all-out assault on New York, since it would involve moving massive amounts of supplies through remote and hostile territory in upstate New York, where Loyalists and Native tribes still conducted raids. Again, the U.S. simply did not have the resources for this sort of offensive. That left the third option. Stay almost entirely on the defensive. The Continentals would remain in northern New Jersey and New York, preventing the British in New York City or Newport from having any room for offensive operations. Given the Army's resources, Washington considered this the best option. The Continental Congress could not afford to significantly enlarge the Army. Instead, they would have to focus on increasing the national output of food by leaving more men on the farms. Washington urged Congress to continue its diplomatic efforts to continue to obtain more loans in order that they might have the resources to take more actions at some point in the future. In short, Washington was telling Congress that there was no way to end the war anytime soon. Congress was going to need to find a way to come up with more resources before that would change. Washington did refer generally to taking some actions against hostile tribes in upstate New York and further to the west. He noted that the army needed to secure the frontier, but he left vague his actual intentions on how to handle that problem. Left out of the final report were some sections from a draft version which speculated that Britain might pull out on its own due to internal political pressures and the need to focus on the war with France. The draft also speculated that Britain had an incentive to hold onto a garrison in North America because it gave the king a place to hold large numbers of troops that was relatively close to its island colonies in the West Indies, but still in a climate where the soldiers did not die in great numbers from tropical diseases. The draft went on to discuss the role of France and possibly Spain in future efforts. It expressed a belief that Spain's entry into the war might tip the naval balance sufficiently that Britain would have to pull out of the U.S. entirely. It appears that Hamilton removed several pages of the report about all this speculation. He may have done so because Washington did not agree with his assessment. It may also be that Washington did not want to speculate on the actions of the enemy and its allies, but wanted to keep the focus on the resources and capabilities of the Continental Army only at this time. The other big issue left out of the report entirely was the defense of the southern colonies. It's most likely that word of the British capture of Savannah had not reached Philadelphia by the time Washington submitted his report. He did not seem to envision any major operations in the southern colonies for the coming year. Congress, as you may recall, had sent Benjamin Lincoln to take over the southern command, but there were no plans to increase the troop levels in those regions any soldiers would need to be recruited locally. Lincoln 
didn't write Washington about the capture of Savannah until January 5th or 6th, and if he didn't send an express rider, news might not have arrived for several weeks. Washington's report to Congress appears to have been delivered on January 8th, 1779, and the first mention in the congressional record, at least, of the capture of Savannah does not appear until January 20th. That would be about three weeks after Britain had captured Savannah. So, as I said, Washington's report gave no consideration to any expanded warfare in the southern states and anticipated no focus on a southern campaign for 1779. Washington's biggest concern about maintaining the Continental Army was that he would have no army to maintain. In the written report, Washington only talked about the general difficulties of supplying the current army and the fact that many enlistments would end in the coming months. In the field, soldiers were grumbling about being unpaid, underfed, ill-clad, and left in such a state of deprivation that the army might disband on its own. Washington urged Congress to offer large signing bonuses to keep soldiers enlisted for the duration of the war. Congress agreed that men would receive a signing bonus of $200 to continue in service for the course of the war. It also offered generous bonuses to recruiters who enlisted the soldiers. With the optimistic tone, at least publicly, that 1779 would probably be the final year of the war as the Continentals pushed the British out with French assistance, Congress hoped that soldiers would turn out in sufficient numbers to finish the job. In truth, though, no one expected the war to end in 1779. Officer compensation was also a problem. Many officers were tired of the miserable conditions, and unlike many enlisted men, had many more attractive options to go to back home. The lack of any major military operations meant that they would be sitting in camp, fighting boredom, and thinking about all the deprivations they were suffering while away from home and while the civilians around them were prospering. Officers, as much as the enlisted men, were eager to return home. Washington urged Congress to agree to pay officers a pension of half pay for life if they remained until the end of the war. That was the deal that British regular officers received. Congress, though, thought that was too expensive. Instead, it agreed to half pay for officers for seven years following the end of the war. That was enough time for them to get back on their own feet and return to work. Washington did not believe that that was sufficient inducement for many, as it put their old age into great risk. But that was what Congress was willing to offer, so that is what he got. There is no record of Washington having met with General Arnold during his visit. Now, this is not to say that the two men didn't meet. There were a great many days when there was no record for what Washington was doing. However, the lack of any public meetings with the military governor, while holding several meetings, both official and social, with his chief rival, Joseph Reed, may indicate that Washington was concerned about the charges of greed and corruption being levied against Arnold. On Christmas Day, General Washington and his wife Martha accepted an invitation to dine at the home of Joseph Reed, the president of Pennsylvania's Supreme Executive Council. In attendance were Washington's aide John Lawrence, New York Delegate and President of Congress John Jay, Massachusetts Delegate Samuel Holton, and Spanish arms dealer Juan de Morales, 
who the governor of Cuba had sent as an observer to the Continental Congress. The following Monday, December 28th, Washington attended a celebration at the Festival of St. John the Evangelist, hosted by the local Society of Free and Accepted Masons. He was given a place of honor in their procession. On December 30th, Washington wrote to Benjamin Harrison about his concerns for the country and the war effort. While these comments don't seem to be directed specifically at Arnold, Washington likely had heard a great deal from Joseph Reed on the topic. Washington may also have had in mind the Dean Affair, which had led to the resignation of Henry Lawrence as President of Congress and was still a divisive issue. His thoughts probably applied to a great many leaders. It does express Washington's concern about the men looking more to their private interests rather than those of the country. Quote, If I was to be called upon to draw a picture of the times and of men from what I have seen and heard, and in part know, I should, in one word, say that idleness, dissipation, and extravagance seems to have laid fast hold to most of them, that speculation, peculation, and an insatiable thirst for riches seems to have got the better of every other consideration and almost every order of men, that party disputes and personal quarrels are the great business of the day, whilst momentous concerns of an empire, a great and accumulated debt, ruined finances, depreciated money, and a want of credit, which in their consequences is a want of everything, are but secondary considerations and postponed from day to day, from week to week, as if our affairs were the most promising aspect. After drawing this picture, which from my soul I believe to be a true one, I need not repeat to you that I am alarmed and wish to see my countrymen roused. On January 4, 1779, General and Mrs. Washington dined at the home of Robert Morris, another delegate who was also under investigation for self-dealing at the time. Two days later, Washington attended a party at the home of Elizabeth Willing Powell, a prominent socialite, and Washington noticed at the dinner that it was his and Martha's 20th wedding anniversary that night. Several weeks later, on January 18th, Washington attended a banquet hosted by Congress in honor of the French minister Girard. It was a celebration of the alliance with France and an effort to repair relations after the U.S. decided not to work with France on the conquest of Quebec. Washington once again delayed his return to the army after the Supreme Executive Council requested that he sit for a portrait by Charles Wilson Peale. The painting was commissioned to hang in the council chamber. Still in Philadelphia on January 29th, Washington wrote to President John Jay to inform Congress that he would finally be leaving the city. Quote, My long and unexpected stay in this city being attended with many inconveniences to the common business of the army and in other respects, I feel myself under the necessity of requesting permission of Congress to return, and, if consistent with their views, I should be glad to set out for the camp at Middlebrook on Monday next. Despite this announced departure, the following Monday found Washington still in Philadelphia and sitting for yet another portrait. Jay had requested he sit for a medal that Jay wished to create. Finally, on Tuesday, February 2nd, 
Washington departed the city. A local newspaper noted the departure. Quote, Tuesday morning, His Excellency General Washington set off from Philadelphia to join the Army in New Jersey. During the course of his short stay, the only relief he has enjoyed from service since he first entered into it, he was honored with every mark of esteem which his exalted qualities as a gentleman and a citizen entitle him to. His Excellency's stay was rendered the more agreeable by the company of his lady and the domestic retirement which he enjoyed at the house of the Honorable Henry Lawrence Esquire, with whom he resided. With that announced departure, Washington finally returned to his army. Although no one may have fully appreciated it yet, Washington was transitioning from a field commander into more of a political leader. He did remain with the army in the field, but he largely remained near New York City for most of the remainder of the war. Major combat operations in that area had come to an end. Washington's main focus changed from attacking the British to keeping his army properly supplied and his ranks properly filled. He left most of the combat to his major generals who pursued the war in the South. The next week, I want to take a look at British and French plans for 1779. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey! Thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, Trey Nance, George Davis, Lewis White, and George Hunter. Also thanks to Robert Morris Circle supporter, Mike Hager. I've got lots going on for the next three weekends. On Saturday, June 26, 2021, the week after this episode releases, I'm holding a live meetup in Philadelphia for anyone who wants to come. I'm having lunch at the Bourse at noon, right near Independence Hall. Then at 1.30, I'll be meeting in Washington Square at the Tomb of the Unknown Revolutionary War Soldier. The event is rain or shine. I have a room available across the street from the park in the Curtis Center if the weather is bad. I hope that you can show up and meet me and other fans of the podcast to talk about the American Revolution. If you want more details, check out my website at www.amrevpodcast.com. The weekend after that is the 4th of July. I'm going to be holding a special live podcast episode on Sunday, July 4th at noon Eastern Time. This is a great chance for you to interact with me 
and ask any questions you may have about the revolution or anything else. This is an online event, so unlike the event in Philadelphia, you can join from anywhere in the country from the comfort of your own home. There's a link on my website, or you can use the Podbean app for a better interactive experience. I hope you'll be able to join me live on July 4th. Finally, the weekend after that is History Camp America, an all-day event where you can listen to a wide variety of great history presentations. If you want more details on that, go to historycamp.org. And remember, you can use the coupon code AMREV21 to save on tickets. So this week, we looked at Washington's efforts to impress upon Congress the limitations of the Army based on Congress's inability to recruit or feed a larger army. Washington had expected to be in Philadelphia for only a few days, but he remained for over a month. During this, we see Washington becoming a more able politician and someone who could convince the civilian government without the slightest threat of using military force against them. Washington did not get all that he wanted from the talks, but his respect among other leaders only continued to grow. It was Washington's ability to retain unified military leadership and the support of Congress which kept the revolution on track in a way that many thought would never happen. Most revolutions descend into anarchy or become taken over by a military dictator. Although there are some signs that Congress was losing control, Washington very definitely did not step in to act over them. Rather, he continued to work with them and accept civilian rule, regardless of what the civilians finally decided that he should do. That is what made Washington the indispensable man. And that is the title of this week's book recommendation. Washington, the Indispensable Man by James Thomas Flexner. The basic premise of the book is that Washington was probably the only person at the time who could have guided the U.S. through these difficult times, both winning the war and establishing a democratic republic. The book is actually an abridged version of a larger four-volume work that Flexner wrote on George Washington in the 1960s. His book, Washington, the Indispensable Man, came out in 1974. It gives great coverage of the key events in Washington's life and how he kept the U.S. on course toward becoming a republic. My online recommendation this week is an ebook on archive.org called The Itinerary of General Washington from June 15, 1775 to December 23, 1783. This is actually kind of a lengthy book and probably not one that you'll want to read cover to cover. The book tracks Washington through every single day of the war and records through primary source accounts where he was and what he was doing. I find this to be a very helpful tool for figuring out where Washington was on certain dates, so it's a great reference tool for me, and you might find it interesting as well. It was originally assembled for a series of journal articles, but was published as a book in 1892. As always, you can search for the book on archive.org, or I've included a direct link on my website at www.amrevpodcast.com. I've got another question to answer this week. Daniel asks, 
what would have happened had King George and Great Britain been more open to accepting the Continental Congress's Olive Branch petition in July 1775? Well, Daniel, most of the Continental Congress had been hoping for and expecting a political compromise to the dispute in the years leading up to the war. Chances of that deteriorated after Lexington and Concord shed blood only weeks before the Second Continental Congress first met. Even so, delegates to that Second Congress still did not think independence and military victory was a realistic option. That is why Congress sent the Olive Branch Petition. It gave the king one last chance to intervene, blame Parliament for going too far, and work out a peaceful solution. Had the king accepted the petition and agreed to send peace commissioners to discuss a political compromise solution, it probably would have divided the patriots. Many radicals, particularly in New England, had already begun to think that nothing short of independence would work by this time. Once blood was shed at Lexington and Concord, they thought there was really no choice but independence or slavery. Many other colonists, though, including perhaps George Washington, recognized that giving the military strength of Britain a political compromise that protected colonial rights was the best outcome they could expect. The delegates at Congress and most of the colonial public only really became convinced that independence was the only option once King George categorically rejected the petition and openly supported the use of more troops to crush the colonial rebellion. Had King George acted otherwise, there likely would not have been a declaration of independence the following year in 1776. Even if some delegates still liked the idea, there would not have been the unanimity that they needed, and many of the colonies would have refused to go along with it. Most of the colonists would have celebrated the king as the protector of English liberties and would have been happy to serve as British subjects for years to come. There was, however, no real chance of this alternative history happening. King George III, we know now in retrospect, was one of the strongest advocates for a military crackdown. He viewed any compromise once the Americans took up arms against the regulars and spilled blood as showing weakness. The colonists needed to be shown who was boss. Then, perhaps, the government could show some mercy and leniency once the colonists had been decimated and begged for the king's mercy. By the time Britain was ready to compromise several years later in 1778, the Americans were more confident in their ability to stand up to the British military and, at that point, were pretty unanimous in rejecting anything short of independence. In 1775, though, those same compromises would have been cause for celebration in the colonies. In hindsight, it's easy to look back and say, yes, the king took a very wrong turn in 1775 by standing tough, but let's face it, kings did not become kings or stay kings very long if they gave away political power every time a few people asked for it. So, as we expected, King George held tough, called for a military crackdown, and bet that he would be successful. Of course, that proved to be a bad bet. Remember, if you have a question you'd like answered on the show, please be sure to email me, mtroy.history at gmail.com, and you can find that address on my website at www.amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. 
I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. <laughs>